Welcome to the Pray for Surf podcast. This is Phil Miliarati, and today I'm joined by a co-interviewer, Mark Dillon, who has written 50 Sides of the Beach Boys and is a Beach Boy fan as well as a journalist. And we're also joined by Jim Hirsch, who was the, is this right, Jim? The, would you be the co-writer with Mike Love of Good Vibrations, My Life as a Beach Boy? Is that the best way to describe it? Um, I would describe myself as the collaborator, yes. Collaborator. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. Well, Jim, thank you for joining us. Uh, the book's been out at this stage when we're talking, what, maybe six weeks, uh, maybe a little more than that. Uh, yeah, and, about, uh, I, think, I think five weeks now, yes. Oh, okay, good. I've not seen any, uh, I've seen some reviews and stuff, but uh, it seems to be getting some good interest. Uh, I hope you're feeling that or... What's your sense yeah, I think, uh, in this well, early stage? Um, I, I'm feeling good about it. Um, you know, this was the first time that Mike really had a chance to tell his story, and so that was meaningful. And the Beach Boys uh, are, of course, you know, a, a, an important and iconic American band, and um, the, the book became a New York Times bestseller. So that was good that there there's still interest in the story. Uh, so, uh, so, so yes, I, I would say. You know, all, all all the boxes have been checked as far as I'm concerned. Great. Good. How uh, how did you uh, come into the collaborator role? Uh, you've been a Beach Boy well, fan, independent yeah. of this. Did you know Mike? What can you tell us about that part of the story? No, I, I was uh, not a, um, a music buff or a music critic or anything like that. Um, what, what happened was, uh, Mike Love decided that he wanted to write his memoir. He had reached a point in his life where he had been putting it off for many years. Um, his father died in 2012, I believe. I think that, combined with encouragement from his wife and family, finally got him to agree to do it. Uh, one of his representatives reached out to a literary agent in New York saying that Mike needed a writer to work with, and so, uh, and, and this, this agent happened to happens to represent me. So he called me and asked me if I was interested. Um, the, the truth is, I didn't know anything about the Beach Boy story. And um, okay. but in, in retrospect, I think that served me well because I came in with a complete blank slate. Uh, as as many Beach Boy fans knows, um, it's it's a contentious history. And so I think coming in with it without any preconceptions was useful because then I could kind of absorb it all for the first time and perhaps ask questions of Mike that he may not have otherwise been asked. And uh, and so that's that's really the origins of the project. Sure. Well, one more for me then, uh, Mark, jump in. Uh, you know, I'm a non-journalist, you know, written some small stuff, but not a book and certainly not with a collaborator. How does that work? And maybe it's different between every so-called author, the Mike Love part, and uh, the collaborators, the Jim Hirsch part, but did he just send you emails of content and you went from there? Or you guys sit down for hours at a time? That's a really good question. Um, I've done several of these collaborations. I think each one is unique. It just depends on the, the parties in, involved. In the case with Mike, uh, I would travel out to his home. He, he has uh, homes in 
uh, Lake Tahoe and San Diego County. So I, I would go out there and not just like show up for two hours and then go back to a hotel. I would go and actually move in with them for two, three, even four days at a time to conduct to conduct my interviews with Mike as well as friends and family members who were available. Uh, but really, you know, when when you move in with someone, that gives you a perspective on that person that you can't get by just you know showing up and doing a couple of hours and and then and then going by. I I I really had a good sense of kind of the rhythm of his life uh, by doing that. But beyond those uh, um, interviews, what I also did was a great deal of of my own research. I interviewed, I believe it was well over 50 people, uh, friends, family, colleagues who knew Mike in some capacity, uh, from his childhood days to what he's doing right now. So those interviews were, of course, extremely helpful. I, I read, I, I, I hopefully got all of the books that had been written about the Beach Boys, and there are many, as you know. Yeah. And so um, that was extremely helpful. Yeah, and so Sorry, and so I'm just and so just just re- reading all the the histories were extremely helpful. And then finally, and most important, the Mike was and the Beach Boys were involved in a series of lawsuits in the early 1990s. Uh, Brian sued his uh, record label. Uh, Mike and others sued the publisher of Brian's memoir in 1991. And then finally, Mike and uh, sued Brian over the copyright to a bunch of their songs. Those lawsuits produced thousands of pages of court <laughs> records. Yeah. Um, the, the depositions, yeah. the testimonies, the contracts, the exhibits, and almost all the principals were involved in those, in those uh, lawsuits. Uh, not Dennis and not Murray, Brian and Dennis and Carl's father. Both of them had passed away, but all the others were there. And what I would tell anyone who wants to write about the history of the Beach Boys, that is where you start, because you have all of these depositions, people talking under oath, um, and that gives that gave me the clearest sense of what actually happened, particularly in, in the in the early days of this band and going right on through the 60s and 70s up until the time of, of those lawsuits. Wow. Mark, jump in. Well, first, uh, Jim, I, I'd just like to say congratulations. Uh, I think it's a, it's a very compelling read, and, uh, you know, kudos to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, and, I, um, and I read your book, and it was, it was very good. Oh, thank you. Of, of um, course. You know, and another another book, and you mentioned Brian's pseudo-memoir from, from the early 90s, but of course there, there's a new Brian book out, and I'm wondering if, if you've had a chance to uh, read that, because inevitably your book is going to be compared against that book, and has been in a lot of the reviews so far. I have not read Brian's book. Um, I spent well over two years studying and researching Brian Wilson, one of the most you know, fascinating figures in the history of pop music. I, I know Brian. And there's nothing in that book that I could learn about him that I don't already know. Um, I would have loved to have sat down and, and spoken with him, and, and I tried to, um, but my requests were, well, they weren't even denied. They they weren't even responded to. Um, but I I feel that I, I I know Brian Wilson extremely well, 
and uh, th- and I really don't think I would learn anything in that book. Right. Um, so I mean, you you ramped up on all this research. Are are you a fan now of the of the Beach Boys, or do you still have the kind of journalistic remove from the story? Well, I should say I've I've always been a fan of their music. Uh, you know, I grew up listening to you know uh, Endless Summer and and all all those songs. So I've I've um, so I always enjoyed their music. I did a lot of research into music itself, and particularly uh, people in in the Beach Boys now. There are some really smart musicologists who could who who really helped explain the you know why why is the music so good you know i mean that was one of the questions that i would ask people and it's kind of hard to answer except some people have are are able to unpack it better than than others and i and i've listened to it now uh, so much of it and really kind of tried to study it and i i think at one point i i told my wife that um when you uh when when you find divinity in the chord progressions of wouldn't it be nice, you know you're too close to your subject, <laughs> right? <laughs> so so are you saying on, on why the music is good? You mean why it's considered to be good, or or you came into it agreeing that it's great and, and you wanted to, uh, somebody to deconstruct it for you? No, the the latter. The um, that I. I always knew, you know, it was music that made people happy, that, that yeah, people enjoyed listening to. I, I didn't appreciate the international scope of the Beach Boys, that, you know, they were playing, in, they, they have been playing and continue to play in front of non-English speaking crowds and get the same reaction, whether they're in, whether they're in Czechoslovakia in the 1960s or they're in uh, Korea this year. Uh, even people who don't understand the whole, you know, American experience and the English language still love the the the, the harmonies and the and so you know that's part of the power of of the music. I think the uh, most insightful thing that anyone told me about it, and this is in Mike's book about about that that question, you know, why. Why is the music good? And of course, it's hard to generalize because the music, of course, covers so many genres and so many years, and there's so many different right. types of music. But particularly, we're talking about what most people associate the Beach Boys with, which is the hits from 1962 to 1966. Um, so someone said to me, the, and this is really the genius of Brian Wilson. It, it's it's um, uh, com- it's simplicity camouflaging complexity. You have no idea what's going on, uh, what what Brian was doing with the with the different chord progressions, um, because and because if it if it was easy to do, then everyone would have done it, and everyone would have had popular songs. But of course, it, w- it was very hard. And Brian working with, of course, you know Mike and Dennis and Carl and Al and, and all the others just created a body of work that is really unmatched in American pop music history. So uh, in my book, I asked a lot of people to talk about one song that means a lot to them. So, I mean, if this book had come out before I had done my book and I had known about you and I would have proposed to you to participate in my book, what song do you think you would have chosen? I mean, especially now that you have this kind of insider uh, look into them. I, um, it, this, this is kind of a, uh, a trite answer, but I mean, but the, the song "Good Vibrations" works on so many 
levels that, you know, that I can listen to that so many times over and over again and try to understand, you know, what Brian was doing and what Mike was doing with the lyrics and just the, the different contours of that song and the, and the un- unusual length of that song, at least at the time, over, over th- three minutes, and the historical importance of the song for the Beach Boys. It, it came out at the, end of the 19, at the end of 1966, just at the time when um, the Beach Boys were just about to fall off the cliff in terms of their own popularity. America was changing from the sort of idealistic, idyllic time of the early and mid-60s that we associate the Beach Boys with, that was going on in the country with the Vietnam War and civil rights and unrest in the cities, and new music was was addressing those kinds of social issues. That was not the music that the Beach Boys did, but the song Good Vibrations was one song that did capture the kind of flower power moment, and it was the one song that they did that was um, that was avant garde and progressive and captured the moment so well. And then, um, and so I, I think, you know, that's, and, and, and I know from Mike's perspective, you know, that's why he loves that song so much. Not, not only because it was so successful and fans loved it, but it showed to Mike that the Beach Boys could evolve with the times. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that all came to a halt at the end of 1966. But I, I think that's why that song uh, means so much to me. If and, I could I'm, jump in. Yeah. Just a quick comment. Thanks, Mark. Uh, my, you know, I lived that in real time, and my sense was, again, I'm no music critic, but uh, just a kid growing up and loving that music, uh, their popularity was uh, never higher. And I think if Smile had come out, even in a form that maybe didn't seem totally finished, uh, uh, Heroes and Villains was really top ten. That wasn't a bad number for for their song. I think it would have been higher if it had come out a little sooner. Uh, there's no telling, you know, it would have been the Sergeant Pepper before Sergeant Pepper. So obviously I'm not, not uh, totally objective. I'm a super beach boy fan, but I, I think as uh, I was watching the, the, the charts, so to speak in those days, uh, I think they had a chance to take another step forward. I think what, one of the things Mike's, I don't want to put words in Mike's mouth that aren't totally accurate, but as I was reading the book, some of his concern as to what happened at that time was drug related that, made the music was growing and progressing uh drugs and hipsters and folks who were pushing that stuff on maybe the wilson brothers uh interrupted yeah, so, that's my so i mean no if you know, i'm sorry go ahead i was gonna say you don't have to agree with that jim that's just my take go ahead. yeah no no i mean so what are the one of the key storylines in the history of the Beach Boys that Mike, you know, talks about in great length is that um, Mike believes that drugs did in um, his cousin Brian as well as Dennis. And, and, and it had a huge impact in, in the late 1970s on, on, on Carl, although Carl was able to, to pull himself out of it. But, um, you know, it's, it's a very controversial part in the history of the Beach Boys because yeah. Mike was, was very upset and the people who were around Brian at that time, he blamed them for giving Brian drugs, selling drugs to Brian, um, taking drugs w- with him. And Mike says that Brian Wilson was 
never the same. Now that that's been a very contentious view, um, and people are a lot of people get angry at Mike for um, for making those statements. But as I came into the story and I read the the history of the Beach Boys and got into you know ex- actually what Brian was saying, that's exactly what Brian has said his entire life that you know LSD destroyed his brain and the per- and the damage permanent and, and it seems that uh, it doesn't seem it is the fact that that Brian and has agreed with Mike or Mike has agreed with Mike with Mike has agreed with Brian all these years that 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 drugs had a had a horrible effect on Brian and from from Mike's um, perspective you know it, it wasn't just what it meant to the band it wasn't just about the music it was that Mike and Brian were best friends growing up it's always lost in most of these these histories but the the very close connection that these two guys had and Brian says that in his uh, memoir in I am Brian Wilson he oh, basically makes that same statement I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that and um, and and what what's what so frustrates me and I and your views I, I certainly res, res, would respect them as well. You know, there's there's this whole narrative about well, you have the Brian Wilson camp and you have the Mike Love camp, and it's complete nonsense. There are no two camps. If you got Brian and Mike together today, put them on your show, you would see two guys who respected each other, had a lot of affection for each other, and had great love for each other because they've lived these very distinctive lives in sync with each other over the years. A lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of tragedies, incredible success. And so it's not that Mike and Brian don't get along. It's the people around them. And, again, if you know the story, you you, you could echo it. But to me, the... The, you know, the, there, there, there are a lot of tragedies in the history of the Beach Boys, but the tragedy now is that you have these two men in their mid-70s. They're in the twilight of their lives. They should be hanging out together, and they They should and be they performing don't. together. And performing Amen. together. But, but, <laughs> right but, on, Mark, but, yeah. But, but, you know, the, but what's interesting to me, you know, and, and, I, and I always read that, that, oh, wouldn't it be swell if you, know, you just put them at the piano again and, and try to get them to, you know, recreate the magic and that would be great and that's what actually Mike thought was going to happen when they did the 50 year reunion tour but to me it's less about the music than it is about these two cousins who are estranged from each other particularly for for Brian you know I mean both of his his brothers are dead his parents are dead he's lost many cousins uncles aunts um you would think he would want to embrace the family members that he he has left. I, I spent time with Mike's sister Maureen and Mike's brother Stan. Now Maureen and Brian were incredibly close when they were growing up. Maureen plays the harp. She played that instrument in a number of Brian's songs in the in the 60s. Stan was uh, Brian's bodyguard. Stan is an you know just loves Brian un- unconditionally. They are estranged from Brian Wilson. They cannot get to him. And if and if you don't believe that's a tragedy, then you know we're we're just living on different planets. But that to me is is why you know while I love doing this book and I loved and I I consider Mike a really good friend and his wife Jacqueline a very good friend. I, I'm very very privileged to be in their world. It was. It was a tough book to do in many ways because of all of all the discord that 
surrounds it. Yeah. Here, here's the, here's my theory, and I, Jim, you respond, and Mark, I, I, I appreciate you responding as well. I go back to uh, one of the filler cuts, Shut Down Volume 2, Cassius Love versus Sonny Wilson. Just yeah. a filler. They're in the studio. They're kind of making – I don't know if they made it up as they went along. I don't know if they had 20 takes and wrote every word. I don't think that. But, you know, everybody knew what it was. But it it was Brian and Mike kind of jibing at each other a little bit, you know. Um, right. At least my nose isn't on the critical list. You know, right, right, right. <laughs> good, good nature front. But uh, – and then I – kind of jump into the book, page, I think it's 28, you talk about, well, Mike talks about uh, how they, his family, the love guys, his dad, and they preferred sarcasm as a bonding right among the males. Uh, that kind of, he used the word sarcastic humor, uh, not showing a lot of emotion. And forgive me for being a psychiatrist for a few moments. My thought is that the, the that style, when Mike and I've seen it in some clips where Mike, I think, Mike thinks he's kind of making a joke or being fun. The kind of person and the, the broken person Brian is, the vulnerable person, that doesn't come across as humor. It, it, it becomes hurt. I'm not trying to cast blame. All I'm trying to say is I think that has played itself out now over five, six decades. And back to what you said a moment ago, then I'll be quiet. Um, for some reason, Mike agrees with Brian about the drugs, and yet Mike is seen as the villain, and Brian's always the, the victimized person who's the hero. Uh, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Other well, than you know, I, I think I, a lot I, of it is personality. Well, first, I, ahead, I agree. Jim. I agree almost 100 percent with with everything you just said. That um, Mike has shot himself in the foot many times, and part of the issue with Mike is that he thinks he's he, he's trying to be funny. And I, I, he, I agree. Yeah. And he's and he he does have this kind of you know sarcastic sense of of humor, and um, sometimes it just it, it comes off wrong. Instead of being funny, it comes off as insensitive, and 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 so that that has not served Mike well over the years. Now, whether or not that sarcasm has cut Brian in the way that you suggest, and whether that's part of the reason why that estrangement exists between the two. I mean, I'm, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think I, I, Brian is a sensitive soul. I, I definitely agree with that. But, I mean, he, he can, he, he was, he, he's able to, to give as well as, as take it, you know. As, as yeah, he's that. a prankster. Uh, not at right. all. Today, and, and, he is a, right, a prankster. But, yeah, he was a prankster back then. Absolutely. I, I, think, I think the schism between the two revolves more upon, uh, you know, people who've, who have surrounded Brian over the years, to, to be honest, and here I'm, I'm not taking Mike's side of the story because I'm, I'm, I'm not in any way his, his shill, but one of the um, insightful interviews that I had was with the musician Carly Munoz, if I'm pronouncing yes. his name correctly. He played for the Beach Boys throughout the 70s. He knows all the guys very well spent a lot of time with them and, to, and tries to still and, as, and, as, and, as, um, and as, he, as he told me, as Carly told me what's tough about Brian is that throughout his adult life he's always been behind a firewall and you cannot get through that firewall and there was times when the firewall were the bodyguards, it was time when it was his father it was time when it was Landy, it was time when it was um, his conservator uh, now he's got 
other people who are there as his fire. Oh, no, he's got Melinda. She's very much active in the production and yeah. the executive dimensions. Yeah. Sure. And, and it Mark, keeps not just, I'm sorry, go ahead. But, 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 no, but to me, that, say, Mark, that's the, Go ahead. Um, well, I mean, it, it's very interesting what, what we were talking about earlier, um, you know, about, you know, this estrangement from family that, that Brian has. That, 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 that is a tragedy. And yet, I mean, you did have Brian publicly saying, you know, after the reunion tour that, you know, we wanted to go on. And so it's, it's within Mike's power to make that happen. I mean, Mike is the one who owns the name for the Beach Boys. He's, he's running the touring thing. And he didn't want Brian and Al to tour with him. So, I mean, the, the end story here, like the, the coming together of the families, it seems like it can only happen if, if Mike makes it happen, if you know what I'm saying. Well, but the, 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 I, I don't agree with your characterization of how the tour went down. Um, uh, first of all, it is true that when, when Brian and Carl's heirs voted to give Mike the – the license. Mike did it only on the condition that he, he not tour with Al. So, I mean, Mike and Al did have a parting of the ways. That is true. But in terms of Mike touring with, with Brian, you know, that whole tour came together with a, with a very clear um, goal in mind, very clear number of, uh, of dates in mind with 50. They extended it to, to 73. They were to Mike and his group, you know, the Beach Boys. They were told by Melinda and Joe Thomas that they were going to leave and a, and a date certain. Mike and then his group then started setting dates for the Beach Boys, and then there was uh, a change of heart on their part, and there was just a lot of feeling on Mike's part, and he describes this in some detail in the book that they were not straight with him. They misled him. They they lied to him, not Brian, but the people around him. And um, there was, it just left them with some very, very hard feelings. And I, 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 but, but I, I think, think there were two. You finished, Jim. Go ahead. Well, no, let me say, I'm, I'm sure if you had Melinda on the show, she would, she would tell you that, you know, she would cast aspersions at Mike and Jacqueline and, and, and that crew. So I, I totally get that. My point is, I think if it were just Mike and Brian, yes, they would go out and tour, absolutely. But there are too many people around them that will ensure that that does not happen. Right. Yeah, I think you draw that well. I also think Mike's view of the, the business, what I would call the business manager view that Mike takes uh, of the certain size venues and the cost of travel and how many amps you bring. I mean, I, I just think that's another area where he it sounded like from the book that he felt that the 50th reunion tour was a whole lot more probably less profitable maybe is the way to say it well than, the, the, than, so, than so, his no, way. and that's so, so it was economic as well right I mean, and and the point needs to be made so you know mike owns the license and 17 and a half percent of everything they generate goes to the partners including brian and al and carl's heirs but for that to be economically viable, um, they have to be very smart in sort of what, what venues they play and, and what their costs are. And the reality of the 50th anniversary tour was that it lost money on the domestic side because the band was so big. The costs were, were too high given the 
revenue that these concerts were generating. And the concern that Mike had going forward was that, well, if we start um, not just losing money ourselves, but if our promoters are losing money, if the venues are losing money, uh, then we're, we're going to jeopardize the brand. And so those those economic factors were very much part of their consideration about can we keep this going. Mark, you um, want to go on? Yeah, I, go I wanted to uh, – you talked about not being able to get Brian for an interview. And, and I mean, I know that, that – I mean, you should have gotten a response, obviously. But uh, I, I do know that Brian, you know, in signing the contract for his memoir, was not allowed to talk to any other authors at all during that time frame. That was part of his, his book deal. But anyway, I was wondering what uh, – I, I, obviously, you must have approached the other Beach Boys. Did any of the other ones speak with you? Well, yeah, I, I spoke to Al, uh, and I spent a lot of time with, 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 with Bruce, of course, who still tours with Mike. And I, I had a great uh, three or four hours in, Calif- in Southern California with David Marks. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I reached them all, and, and I spoke to others who have been in the band before but who are not in the band now, you know, guys who maybe played with them in the 70s or 80s. Uh, spent a lot of time with John Stamos, who actually was one of the best interviews I had in terms of someone who, um, who, who, who's known the, the guy since the, the mid-1880s. Um, spent a lot of time with Elliot Lott, who started as Carl's driver in 1972. Ultimately, he became the, the CEO of of BRI Brother Records Incorporated. Right. So I mean, he's been attached to these guys for you know forty plus years. I mean, oh, yeah. what, what, what's, what's, so here's here's what was fascinating about about the, the research in this book. The I, I told you I spoke to over fifty people. All of them, but one, would would characterize themselves as a friend of both Mike and Brian. They've worked with them. They're colleagues. They're a family member. Um, and when you speak to them, they they all say the exact same thing. First, they they all speak very highly of these of, of all the Beach Boys. You know, Dennis, Carl, everyone, just as 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 good people. You know, I mean, people who who you know they 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 may have made mistakes in their personal lives, but they they try to help other people in positive ways. Um, so that that's the first thing that comes across. Nice guys. And then the, and the second thing you hear from them is that you know. Like Brian and Mike, it's a tragedy that that they aren't together because these these are just too good. They're they're cousins. They're good guys. They love hanging out with each other when they're when they're together. And the last time they were together was on the fiftieth tour. The you know it was so obvious. And there's a and when you talk to all these guys, there's just a and and women you you can hear the pain in their voice. You know and and so that's why I'm I'm repeating myself now. So I apologize, but that's why. While the the project was was you know so rich in so many ways, um, it was there's it, there most books have a resolution, and this is one of those few books I've ever done that really did not have that resolution. Just a quick question, Jim, and I know that your time is ending. Yeah, Mark and yeah. I'll stand for a few minutes. Thank you. Uh, quick question: You mentioned that you did talk with Alan. Um, any? Any conversation from him as to you know he's talked about being fired by Mike. Uh, it, it, those are years past. Uh, they've worked together on the fiftieth. Uh, is it um, typical, you know, so, awkward? How would you describe it? No. It, it, well, 
it was not an awkward conversation. I didn't mean awkward for the. I meant between the two of them. What is things like between Mike and Alan? Is basically what I'm saying. Well, let me preface it by saying saying this. You know, most bands die in a fairly early in <laughs> an ugly death. You know, now we romanticize the Beatles as well. We should. You know, arguably the greatest musical group that has ever been formed and now you know particularly if you see the, the the ron howard documentary that just came out it's all love and kisses among the beatles we forget that they broke up after 11 years in a flurry of lawsuits and recriminations and hate-filled interviews in the press so my point is that it's extremely extremely difficult for bands to survive year after year decade after decade if you and anyone familiar with whether it's the Rolling Stones or Fleetwood Mac or Kiss or anyone. These are extremely high-pressure jobs, creative people with big egos trying to survive in a cutthroat business. So the fact that Mike and and, uh, Al finally had a separation after 40-plus years is itself kind of a miracle (laughs) that these two guys could – that that any group can survive that long. And so I don't think – you know, if if you talk to Mike – about it, or Al, I think they would just say, you know, we spent all these decades together, we just had to separate ourselves. And there's really no it hard It seemed feeling. like they had a particularly strong alliance, though, in the 70s, so I think that's what makes the fact the relationship having gone sour so surprising. Good point. Yeah, they wrote yeah. Good, some good songs together. Yeah. And, and well, they, they were the two guys who embraced meditation. And so, yes, it the the fact that they, they did have a parting of the ways was um, – uh, unfortunate, and now I, I'm not in, in this interview. I mean, I'm not going to get into exactly who said what to whom, but it's in the book, and people right. can read it for themselves. But, um, but you know, when, when I talked to to Al, you know, we we talked about you know singing in in the in the early days and kind of what he's doing now. And what was fascinating to me about Al was that you know, so Al is in, in his you know mid mid early 70s. What he he really wants to do at this stage of his life, even though he's he's performing in, in Brian's band, what he really wants to do now is go back and be a folk singer, which is what he wanted to do when he was 16 wow. years old. <laughs> and I had this impression of a guy who had this musical dream as a teenager. He took this wrong turn and became a Beach Boy, part of the most successful American rock band in history, and now he wants to return to his true roots. <laughs> and God love him. I, I hope he, he's able to. Wow. He's having a midlife crisis. Well, guys, I'm going to have to hop. Um, Thank you for this time, Jim. No, fine. And if if you want to continue the conversation, feel free to set up another time. I'm obviously, you know, I'm happy to to help. We'd love to do that. If we don't talk, please thank you for helping Mike tell his story. Now, there's a lot of Mike haters out there who, whatever Mike says, they automatically assume isn't true and they hate him for it. I mean, I feel bad about that. But Thank you. Uh, You're welcome. Thanks for this conversation. Sure. We'll let you go, and Mark and I will stay on. Thanks, Jim. Bye-bye. Thank you. Mark, you're still there, I hope. I am still here, Phil. Hey, thanks Uh, for this. uh, Just what are your first thoughts about uh, what Jim had to say or how our conversation went? All, all very uh, reasonable. You know, I, I almost expected the book to be more controversial than it is. But, but I mean, I think the tide has turned a bit. Like, sure, there might be Mike Love haters. There might, there might be a fringe. I think the tide has turned a bit in, in recent years, however. I mean, maybe the fact that, you know, he's touring without Brian and Al 
doesn't help his cause necessarily. But, you know, I mean, he had a lot of things against him, Mike Love, that is. Like, if you if you go back to the 90s, um, you know, that was after yeah. the, the, the Hall of Fame incident. Uh, Brian's book came out. There was a big Brian resurgence with his solo album. Um, so that kind of – some people might have interpreted that as, well, look, the Beach Boys kept Brian's artistic ambitions down for so long, and now he's showing that he can, he can do it all by himself. And then Mike Love turns around and, and, and sues for half of the publishing – you know, and if you if you go back and you look at, at Brian's quote unquote memoir from the early '90s that was written through that Eugene Landy uh, filter, um, I forgot where I was going with that, but but oh yeah, so um, uh, Landy, I mean, it, it seems like Landy's voice was saying, well, if Mike thinks he wrote the lyrics to California Girls, he's just <laughs> delusional. I mean, I, I don't think there's any Beach Boys fan out there right now right, that right. doesn't believe that Mike Love wrote those lyrics. I mean, they're, they're so Mike Love, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, oh, I, think, yeah. I think we realize that now, and so I think, you know, if, if people had that kind of anti-Mike Love sentiment, they realize, ah, well, maybe there was a bit of propaganda going on, and, and it wasn't sure. fair. Because certainly the, the biggest ripoff that happened to him was at the hands of Murray Wilson. Because, you know, and Mike was not the only co-writer of Brian's that got ripped off by Murray right. Wilson, and I've interviewed some of them. Like all of Brian's lyrical collaborators in that era got ripped off by Murray Wilson, either by not getting a credit or instead of getting 50% of songwriting, got 25% of songwriting, yeah. which was yeah. just wrong. So, I mean, I, I think uh, people have to understand that when, 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 they, when they make opinions about Mike's. Very good observation. And I think, I wonder if maybe legally this is a correct statement, Mike sued Brian Wilson for the royalties, but isn't it's not technically at least virtually he's really suing what was sea of tunes publishing he's not saying i don't like my cousin i'm mad at him he's he's it was all maybe, business and he was well within yeah. his rights i mean imagine you know you write such great lyrics to to a song like california girls and a don't get a credit and b don't get don't get the the royalties yeah. so he had he was totally within his rights and i mean a lot of people hate him for for suing brian but i mean you know he was put in a position where he had to basically yeah did you uh, see them play live at the 50th uh, during sometime during the 50th tour? I did. I saw them at the Molson Amphitheater here in Toronto. Yeah. I know every night's different. I only saw them once, but um, uh, as I was watching Mike and I was at the, the meet and greet and, uh, you know, saw them a little bit. Um, he, he looked, this is, this is, this is maybe going to sound strange, but you'll, you'll unpack it and come back to me. He looked h- humble or humbled or something, uh, just becoming part of that, you know, the, the five-some again. I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this or something, but... This, I interviewed this, him around that time uh, before that show, yeah. and, and yeah. well, I mean, he said that it was, it, was, it was an education, it was a learning experience in how to get along with people and, and okay. how to collaborate with people. I guess he'd sort of forgot, <laughs> in a way, how to do that with the Beach Boys because, you know, he, he'd been doing his own thing, touring with Bruce and calling the shots. And so yeah. then, of course, you know, you, you're not going to call the shots against Brian, you know, so easily. I mean, Brian obviously has management and, 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 and Melinda who are in his corner and, and it's going to be a tough negotiation. And I, I think Mike found it tough, you know? Yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, he he spoke of it positively, but, but yet, you know, as we know, it doesn't, that, that collaboration does not continue. To well, I'm glad I asked wouldn't, that. wouldn't it be nice, so to speak, if, if the Beach Boys had toured Pet Sounds, you know, as an mm-hmm. anniversary. Ooh. And it's funny because, uh, you know, I'm talking to you from Toronto and 
yesterday on the national on the CBC or a national broadcaster yeah. Brian was interviewed and the, the story got it wrong they actually said that the Beach Boys are touring together and doing the 50th anniversary of Pet Sounds I think people assume that's a natural but uh, right. but <laughs> oddly you know you've got Brian doing it but with Al by himself and then and then Mike's doing his own thing separately yeah well, I think another reason earlier on you were we were talking about maybe the tide turning in terms of the view of Mike uh, the haters will you know never uh, you know, even consider reasonable things. But I, I think the public opinion changing a bit. I think one factor is, uh, you know, I think the Beach Boys shows had gotten very routine in song selection and frankly in quality. And I think whether it was Brian's band or, you know, whatever factors kind of uh, reawakened, whether it was in Mike or however that happened. Uh, in fact, I just read somewhere in a review that, you know, Brian's band had kind of overtaken in terms of quality. The Wonderments are there. Jeff Foskett was in there for most of that time. Uh, and that was the show you wanted to go to. And now some are saying, you know what? The, the Beach Boys Beach Boys show is actually uh, the one you want to see right now. And my view is anytime any of them get on stage, you know, let's why, why quibble. But they're, they're both you... good. They're both yeah. good. I mean, I've, I've seen yeah. a number of shows you know, by, by both. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, I think it, Brian's set list has become more and more like a traditional Beach Boys set list. Yes. You know, I mean, it's funny. In, in Mike's book, Mike characterizes two groups of Beach Boys fans, those who like the stuff up to 1966, and then what he calls the music aficionados who like it from 1967 onward. Well, I mean, I'm right. in both camps on that. I'm sure many, many people are. I, I do have a very strong affiliation to the, to the 1967 to 1973 stuff. I think that's a real highlight, and it's so hidden from, from, from the public. Like, it's just not, it's not well known. Um, so, I mean, it, it was always nice to hear those kind of songs at Brian's concerts. And, you know, Mike's shows might dwell more on, on the 1966 and earlier stuff, but, but within that era, sometimes he digs pretty deep. Like, I always just found it quite fascinating how he loves the song Ballad of Old Betsy, which is a song <laughs> yeah. I kind of forgotten about, you know? And, and he talks about how much he loves it. Here's this, this deep cut, and, and they yeah. do it in their shows. And I, I guess it sort of raised the profile of this little song to the, to the point where it was on the last box set, you know? Yeah, deep, very deep. It was six feet under, I think. <laughs> uh, but but he's pulled it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, it's good to talk to uh, Mike's collaborator. Some insights there, and uh, maybe we can get a conversation with Brian. Let's see what we can do about that. Any other yeah, thoughts or comments good. you want to make? Was there a question you wanted to ask that I didn't give you time to to jump in on? Well, I had uh, I had many. I mean, uh, I, I guess I wanted to know one thing. I mean, you know, he did his research, and then he got Mike's input. Was there ever a point where he had to push back and say, well, Mike, that's not exactly what happened? I mean, I've, I've yeah, talked to 50-plus to cool. people. You know, I mean, Mike. Mike has a way, and maybe he's doing this deliberately. But when he talks of the, of the Smile era in interviews, and he's very dismissive of heroes and villains, mostly because it wasn't a chart success. He'll he'll often say, "Well, look, it, it went to number seventy-five on the charts. Well, it went to number twelve on the charts. So obviously, yeah. it, was, it was not uh, an out-and-out right. disaster." Right. So I'm I'm wondering if if Jim had to sort of push back sometimes and say, "Well, this this is how it happened." Because memories are not good. You know, I, I, in doing my book. People would say things, and I would do the research, and I mean, there's no way that I could corroborate what they were saying, and I could not include those things in, in the book. And it just shows you, like, you know, I, f I forget things that happened two years ago. We're talking about 50-plus 50, 50 years ago, so right. um, memory is a funny thing. 
Absolutely. Well, Jim said we uh, he'd want to do a part two. Maybe uh, you and I can talk offline here and see if we can't set something like that up. That'd be fun. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Mark, and thank you, Jim, who's uh, signed off already. And uh, anyone listening, wherever you are, thanks. Appreciate thanks, it. Phil. Don't go away. Hang on.